is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It was exactly four years ago today that Susan Ballard was named Honolulu Police Chief. She replaced former Chief Louis K. Aloha, who had just been indicted by a federal grand jury just a week prior for his part in framing an innocent man. The charges, conspiracy to obstruct justice. This morning, we talked to retired federal public defender Alexander Silver, who represented that innocent man, Gerard Puana, who wept after his name had been cleared. But it would take seven years and several trials to finally get the convictions of the former chief and his wife, Catherine, against all odds. In October of 2019, two years ago, the Kealohas pled guilty to bank fraud and mail fraud. Both are behind bars. Silbert, who retired last October, says the book wrote itself as he began detailing the drawn-out drama and the interagency tensions at play. We talked to him this morning about his book, The Mailbox Conspiracy. You know, you often hear the phrase, you don't know the half of it. Well, Silbert fills in what didn't get on the news. The book starts out with the day that his client, Gerard Puana, walked into his office. Gerard was insistent from the beginning that not only didn't he do it, but that he was innocent and being framed. You know, in a criminal trial or a defendant to win, we just have to convince a jury that the government hasn't proved beyond a reasonable doubt that they're guilty. We don't have to prove they're not guilty, nor do we have to prove they're innocent. But Gerard, from the get-go, was insisting he was innocent, and that's what he wanted me to prove, which is something, a very high standard, and given that there was a videotape in this case allegedly showing him stealing the mailbox right off the start, you know, it did not appear to be a very good case for him. And then, of course, being the Kaloas who are claiming that this person stole their mailbox and they know the person, they know what he looks like because he's a family relative and he's the one in the videotape. Not a very hopeful case. Well, take our listeners to the day when you knew you had something because what was, you know, just kind of pro forma, just checking, oh, what type of mailbox was it? Then it turned out to be a critical piece of evidence. So the police report had crime scene photographs. The whole mailbox was lifted off the top of it and removed and put in the car and driven away. What was left was the pedestal of the mailbox. And this was one of those fancy mailboxes, not the kind you buy at True Value Hardware Store for $30. This was an expensive ordered mailbox, which had a fancy pedestal, and the mailbox itself had a lock and was made of cast iron. So the photograph that we had from the 911 officer who processed the crime scene was just of the pedestal that remained. So the first thing we did was we were told it was a Gaines mailbox, and we simply contacted a Gaines company on the mainland faxed them a copy of the pedestal and just asked them if they could verify that this was their pedestal and what mailbox went on that pedestal. Because every pedestal and mailbox are made for each other. They're unique systems that interlock with one another. So if you have the pedestal, we should be able to identify the mailbox. And we were just doing this out of due process, you know, crossing our our T's and dotting our I's in the sense that we had a client who said he was innocent. So you know, we were going to check on every piece of information. We didn't expect to get much out of this when we were just double-checking what was written in the police report. But to our surprise, when the Gaines manufacturing agent called us back, he said that was not their pedestal. It could not have been their mailbox. But better yet, he knew which company did make it. And it turned out to be another company called the Solar Group or Gibraltar, 
And their mailbox, after we sent them the photograph, they confirmed that it was their mailbox, but it had a value of $180, whereas the Gaines manufacturer mailbox had a value of $380, which is what the KLOS and HBD claimed was the value. And that value made a huge difference because anything over $300 under state law was a felony. Anything under $300 was a misdemeanor. And this case originally, according to the KLOAs and the paperwork, was supposed to be processed and prosecuted in state court. So making it a value of $380 was significant because it made it a felony. And so that break really early on in the case of just doing a simple thing to verify the make and model of the mailbox led us immediately to realize that something was terribly wrong if the KLOs were lying about the make, model, and value of their own mailbox. And the idea is that if they were able to convict Gerard of a felony, that that would discredit him in this other civil case that they had. Florence Poana, Gerard's mother, who was 93 at the time, and Gerard had filed a civil suit in state court against Catherine Kailoa, Florence's granddaughter, um, because they alleged that she had stolen $166,000 of their money and had uh, reneged on a deal involving a reverse mortgage that had been worked out within the family, which eventually cost Florence her home. So they had sued Catherine in civil court for damages to get that money returned. And we realized that if Catherine had lost that civil suit, and had been proven that she had stolen this money as an attorney and as a prosecutor, she could easily lose her job. She could lose her law license. So it was a very significant case for the Kailoas, and the outcome was critically important. And that lawsuit had been filed in March of 2013. So in June of 2013, when Catherine claimed it was Gerard who stole her mailbox, if she had been able to obtain a felony conviction against them, that felony conviction could have been used in the civil case to discredit his character and his reputation. In other words, the jury could have said, well, if he's a thief, then he's not honest, and we're not going to believe his testimony. And that, we believe, was the entire purpose of why the KLO was framed Gerard, was to discredit him in the civil case to save Catherine from a verdict against her in the civil case. So that established a motive, but as this case worked its way through the courts, the chief blurted out something about Gerard's past that uh, ended up dismissing the case. Right. We had no evidence that we uncovered that Louis Kailoa was involved in the initial frame-up. We think, at least I thought, at the time, that that was something that Catherine had done, and maybe Bobby Nguyen, who had been married to Catherine's niece, had done. I think, though, that once Louis found out about it, whenever that was, and it was very early on, it could have been that evening or in the morning after the the fake theft occurred, that he got involved and he jumped in with both feet. And at the trial... He was the second witness to testify. As everybody knows, he's had many years on the police force. He's trained other police officers how to testify. He's the chief of police. 
He knows the rules of evidence. He knows the rules of procedure. He knows how to be a witness in court. And yet, when he was asked by Larry Tong, the prosecutor, a very innocent question that simply called for a yes or no answer, he started to answer, he hesitated, and then he blurted out an answer that was clearly improper under the rules of court. And he knew it, because as soon as he had done it, and I objected and the court stopped the proceedings, he turned to the judge and apologized, which to me indicated right then and there that he knew exactly what he had done. And his statement was basically that Gerard looked like he did in 2013 when he was photographed in a police photograph for being arrested for a, a burglary. And you can't do that in a courtroom. You can't refer to a prior crime and and bring that to the attention of the jury unless that issue has been litigated and the court has approved that information being given to the jury, and it had not. And Louis knew it had not. And yet in his answer, he referred back to that prior crime uh, in it, uh, to, to say simply that Gerard looked the same. And that was highly improper, and there was no question in my mind that Louie knew exactly what he was doing. And let's talk about the fact that, uh, you know, after that, the Justice Department made a decision to go outside of Hawaii to get a prosecutor then to take up the case because you just, you presented your evidence and you knew something wasn't right here. The first part of the book is more like a whodunit story, even though we know who did it eventually. I write the book to show everybody how we uncovered each piece of evidence that really never came out to the public, certainly not in the trial of Gerard, because we never got there. It was our intent to show all of this evidence during the trial, which didn't happen because Louis created the mistrial. So the book is written to show how we uncovered multiple pieces of evidence to prove that this was a frame-up, that the police reports had either omitted critical evidence or falsified evidence outright. And I had all that evidence, and I had that evidence for years before the Kailoas were formally indicted. So from our perspective, we knew a lot, you know, what the public didn't know. And we knew the evidence we had, and that's what we presented to the FBI, and that's what we presented to the special prosecutor, Mr. Wheat, who was brought in from San Diego, which is a normal thing when a high-ranking police officer or public official who works regularly with the local U.S. attorney is charged with a crime, it's normal to bring in an outside prosecutor so that there's no appearance of impropriety, no appearance of conflict of interest. And so then Attorney United States Attorney General Holder appointed Mr. Weed from the San Diego office to come and prosecute the case. He had the same exact authority as Mr. Mueller, in the uh, investigation of what happened in the elections and the Russian investigation. He had the same authority, but with a lot less manpower, and he was brought in to investigate this case. So what was your reaction when you saw the depth of their investigation? I mean, because they uncovered so much more. What was your reaction? Because yeah. <laughs> you can't well, make up a lot of this stuff between the affair with the firefighter and you know, the latest uh, thing about, you know, a, a photo of uh, uh, lines of coke in the police chief's office. I mean, it just it, it just seems so outlandish, but it's stunning. 
It, it is stunning. I have a chapter in the book where I discuss my relationship with Mr. Weed. It's called It's a Sunny Day. And essentially, on the one hand, we provided a lot of information, you know, what I would say the foundation of the information that they use to investigate and eventually indict and convict the Kailoas. But the FBI and Mr. Wee went far beyond anything we had done for several reasons. One, they had the resources and the subpoena power and the investigative tools to go far beyond any ability that we had. And secondly, when we are defending someone, we're looking at a very narrow set of facts, and we're investigating and dealing with those facts because it's what's admissible and relevant in to defend Gerard Puana. We had uncovered a lot of weird things and weird documents that Catherine Kailoa had created, some by Allison Lee Wong, this mystery person that was her alias. But we didn't investigate that because it didn't have any relevance directly to our case. But when we met with the FBI, Mr. Wheat, we had handed over that information to them, and they just took it from there. And so while we could discuss with Mr. Wheat the evidence we had found and uncovered, we couldn't discuss with him the evidence that they were uncovering because that would be improper. So it was kind of like when a lot of this information came out and was exposed in the indictment and in the trial, it was all new to us as well, and we were just stunned by how much more there was and how just unbelievable Catherine Kale's, you know, crime history really was. And what I appreciate about this book is that you do provide a chronology because there are so many different trials. You know, there was this, the, the civil case. There was the case involving uh, the minors that Catherine Kealoha, you know, was handling and, and ultimately, you know, falsified documents as well. But, you know, it, it's just so complicated. It's stretched out over such a long period of time, and it's still not over. It's still not over. There's more to come, I'm sure. I know it's taken a lot of time. Everybody's growing impatient. I've grown impatient. I've learned that this is the way Mr. Wheat works. He's very methodical. I'm sure there'll be more indictments. He's not here for pleasure. He's been working the grand jury. So I think uh, other things will happen. And, you know, there's an old saying, a lot of times it's not the crime itself. It's the cover-up that leads to a lot more people being indicted. And I think that's kind of what's being proven out here through Mr. Wheat's investigation. I think he's not only going to go after people who tried to cover for Catherine and Louis, but that investigation led to other wrongdoings. So I think we're going to see a lot more. Um, it is a complicated story after they were charged. A lot of things happened, not only in the courtroom, but politically. Also, the Kailoas, for years before their trial, uh, tried to go on the offensive and try to recast the narrative. So the book lays out that history of what happened for several years after the indictments were issued, but before the trial. And I think I did a decent job in trying to put things in order so it was understandable not only what happened, but why things were happening. That was Ali Silver talking about the book, The Mailbox Conspiracy, that he just wrote. Uh, as you mentioned, it covers the interagency tension as well as elements of the media coverage of the scandal. It's available through Watermark Publishing and will be in bookstores come December. Uh, Silbert will be featured at the Hawaii Book and Music Festival on October 31st. The online event is free to sign up for. Look for links on our website later today.
Honolulu Civil Beat's Reality Check today looks at the latest candidate preparing to jump into the fray for the job of lieutenant governor. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning with The Scoop. Uh, good morning, Catherine. And no, it's not me. I am not running for LG. <laughs> <laughs> Big scoop there. No, uh, this story, I think, caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, it caught me by surprise uh, that Sylvia Luke, the House Finance Chair, is planning on running for lieutenant governor next year. Uh, and when I say it's a surprise, for a couple of reasons. One, she'd be leaving a very powerful perch at the state legislature. When you're in charge of the Finance Committee, you're one of the three or four most important people in that building, including the governor and LG, I would say. Uh, and and you know, it's the purse strings, uh, along with the Senate Ways and Means Chair. And that's a very big deal. But also, it, it didn't seem like something that she would be interested in. We have heard from others. Jill Takuda, the former state senator, WAM chair, is already running. So is Ikaika Anderson, the former city council chair. Uh, that wasn't as a, much of a surprise, but this one caught people by surprise because, I mean, think about it. If she were to be elected lieutenant governor, she'd be actually giving up power, wouldn't she? Uh, because the office of the LG really doesn't have hardly any official duties. Just a handful of things like changing names <laughs> legally and a few other things. And the governor's out of town, you're in charge, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, you know, we've watched her rise to power, uh, you know, over the years. And, yeah, she has a no-nonsense reputation. You know, she takes no prisoners. Uh, but, yeah, wields a lot of power as one of the two money chairs. And, of course, you know, uh, even though I say the LG position doesn't really have many constitutional powers, it clearly is a stepping stone, and I, and I say that in my article, to higher office, particularly the governorship uh, uh, more than a handful of lieutenant governors have gone on uh, to become governor. Josh Green, the current incumbent, uh, will be almost certainly running for governor to succeed David Ige next year, who's term limited, finishing his second and final term in office. And then, and then there's the U.S. Congress. Uh, Maisie Hirono, a former lieutenant governor under um, Ben Cayetano, was elected to the House and then to the Senate. She's there today. Brian Schatz. Uh, same thing, appointed to the Senate to replace Dan Inouye when he was LG under Neil Abercrombie. And, of course, he won the Senate on his own right. So it really is a position that allows people to step forward. And then there's people like Josh Green, who has transformed the office, certainly under his tenure, by virtue of being a medical doctor and the COVID crisis. Well, you know, this announcement uh, surprises me just simply because of her relationship with House Speaker Scott Psyche. Uh, and also her her relationship, a good relationship with uh, Senator Jill Takuda when uh, they were, you know, both the money chairs. Yeah, they were they were uh, partners in that. Donovan Dela Cruz is the current OAM chair, but yes, Jill Takuda and Sylvia Luke spent many a long hour together, and now they'll be facing each other, um, you know, uh, competitively um, to to win the LG ship. You know, there are other names that are being bandied about to enter into this race as well. Uh, they're all well-known, names that you've heard, uh, I've heard. Uh, but this could change things, having someone with Luke's name recognition, her political clout. I mean, I will say this. She's never run a statewide office. She's from new, you know, the New Uwanu area here on Oahu. But um, she has a lot of money in the bank, over $400,000. You need a, at least a million dollars 
to be competitive in a primary for LG because it's a statewide office. You got to run ads, um, and that might turn off some other people who are thinking about jumping into the race. We will see. And, you know, there was a lot of speculation that we would hear uh, something from House Speaker Scott Psyche, right? He's been uh, (laughs) really out there uh, taking the governor to task um, and, you know, really kind of drawing lines in the sand, so to speak. So what happens there? Yeah, he's... Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and he and Sylvia Luke, uh, old friends from their college days at UH Manoa, Psyche did, in fact, indicate interest in running for LG. He has since decided not to. Now, how does this affect, meaning Sylvia Luke's departure? Because she has to leave no matter what. If you're running for LG, you, you can't stay in the house, right? Certainly can't stay finance chair. But what does Scott Psyche do with his coalition, the the votes he needs out of that 51-member chamber to stay in office? And my guess is... Um, it's more than a guess. It's an estimated, uh, an intelligent analysis, I would guess. I would put it. Uh, who's going to try and challenge him for the speakership? Is that going to happen, assuming he, too, is reelected again next year? Yeah. So definitely, you know, uh, lots of people will be looking uh, at the list. Uh, who else in the House could uh, rise to power if she steps down? Yeah. Big news. Big news. Captain. Absolutely. All right. More to come. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chad. <laughs> All right. Take care. That was uh, editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. You can read the story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. Infection rates are knots, cases, deaths, 14-day moving averages. We've been wading through a world of COVID data, but the way that data is presented may be doing more harm than good. There's always rare events. We didn't used to have policy that was made for that incredibly rare outlier. That's individual health, that's not public health. Fixing COVID math, that's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from Malama Ola Health Services on Oahu, offering hospice and palliative care founded by physicians who, with their staff, are dedicated to providing patients and their families with individualized care. MalamaOlaCares.com October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and a new music video released this month by local artist Rachel Cruz aims to give hope to those struggling through the chaotic cycle of abuse. The song is titled Creepin' Under My Skin.
Rachel Cruz is a Makakilo native and a domestic violence survivor. Her new song answers the question of why victims stay in abuse, and it expresses the inner turmoil of their journey toward breaking free. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with her to learn more about how she's using pain from the past to give hope to others. I am interested in knowing about what you went through to get out of that situation. At what point did you decide to take action and what were some of the steps you took to leave? I actually didn't even recognize that I had had PTSD or any residual effects of trauma until I had my daughter, actually. My very first trigger was when I found out she was a girl. And all of a sudden, all these thoughts about all the things I couldn't protect her from and the things that she might have to live with for her entire life, those things started to flood my mind. So I sought therapy right after that to try and figure out what that was because it was like this unshakable fear that I just couldn't seem to get past. And then when she was born, those fears were, were multiplied, you know, by 10. And so that's when I really realized that there was something else under the surface that I couldn't quite see that needed some TLC. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that process, I finally was able over the years, able to find just kind of gold nuggets that people would drop into my life, random people would come into my life. A good friend of mine first talked to me about what codependency is. And, and you know, I had another friend who, you know, and all of my friends, they're the kind of people who will like give you a little something and then you got to go do your research <laughs> so that you can really educate yourself. So. For me, my journey kind of began then in that moment where I realized I needed help with something. And then it was this process of educating myself to kind of discover what it is I'm dealing with. And then I met finally a therapist or a specialist who was able to say, hey, you know, you've been misdiagnosed. You don't just have, you don't have anxiety or depressive disorder. What you have is called PTSD and it, you know, is from your traumas in your past and into your adulthood. And let's just figure out kind of where the root of that is and see if we can't heal every aspect so that you can be, you know, whole again. How long was, did this process for you take? Was it quite a bit? Was it, did it take years? It's still ongoing, honestly. It does take lots and lots of years. Honestly, I think it matters when you have the right kind of help. And I only just, I want to say a little bit of over a year ago, met my therapist now who really been able to open my eyes to what it is that I'm actually dealing with. We started a different form of therapy, which has proven to be incredible for people who suffer PTSD. And it's very, for me, a very difficult form of therapy because you'll have to remember things that one, uh, you don't want to, or two, that you didn't even know you've forgotten, you know? I would say it takes it takes a lot of years, but on top of the therapy, there's also my my recommendation for people is to do a lot of your own research. And I don't mean it would be great to have more resources available, but also to to really delve into the things that you learn about yourself, like, you know, codependency, look into things like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. The coping skills is what people really, really need who suffer from trauma or any form of abuse, I think. So learning to cope with those those triggers, acknowledging, accepting, and understanding what those triggers look like. It will take years to really, truly heal from it all, but it's a very rewarding journey also. After someone walks this journey and they've come to a point, at least a starting point, mm-hmm. where they can kind of move forward with their life, as a survivor, what can you tell them about what they can look forward to 
you know, what's your life like now? To what extent have you had to rebuild or what kind of good things have been brought into your life now? The main thing for me is I've become a better person. And most importantly, I've become a better mother to my daughter. And so I've been able to give her a different kind of quality of life that I wasn't able to before. I've been able to open myself to a different form of love that I didn't know I was even capable of with her. So she gets to access a lot more parts of me that were closed off, you know, and I didn't, I didn't even know at the time were, you know, so it's that it's, I've seen those kinds of improvement. I've seen a lot more love coming into my life, a lot more opportunities coming into my life. And key for me is the opportunity to connect with and help other people who are kind of stuck in that that heaviness, you know, because it can feel quite defeating. So helping other women and children know that they're not alone. And this can go for men too, because there are men who are abused out there. Just being able to help other people so that they don't feel that loss or loneliness, it, it's been really rewarding. I'm glad to hear that you were able to take such trauma in your life and be able to turn it and use it to help others. Let's talk about your music. Yeah, we all yeah. process our feelings, uh, you know, good or painful in different ways. Many of us do it through one or more forms of art. Has music always been your outlet? Yes. My mom would say that I have been singing since I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> so, um, yes, music has actually always been my platform for voicing and expressing myself and really being able to articulate through the sounds and through the lyrics, what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling and finding creative ways and artistic ways to say it. That's interesting that you say that you, you can express some of the things through the sound of your music. Cause when I first heard your song creeping under my skin, I was initially taken aback by that, by that hard rock vibe reminds me of like early Evanescence, early yeah. <laughs> Park, and which is, which is all my jam. Yeah. Yes, mine too. And it took me aback because many of our high profile local female artists have a very pop or very reggae sound. And, you know, I enjoy that music too. Yeah. But when I first heard those opening notes, I, I was wondering, you know, what's the, what's the story behind the choice to use this type of sound? Is it, is it because you saw it, it was a way for you to process these feelings, these types of feelings with this type of sound? Mm. Well, I've naturally always been drawn to that style of music since I was a teenager, but my mom always says when, when she hears a new song, she's like, hey, I'm waiting for the sunshine and rainbows, <laughs> you know? But I think that musically, I've always heard music in my head. It was always kind of a reflection and expression of what's going on internally for me. So the music in my head or that I actually can audibly hear in my head matches what's going on here. So I think that the reason why the music comes out the way that it does or the why I hear it the way that I do is because that's what I was feeling. That kind of heavy, it wasn't chaotic, but I mean, it's melodic, but you know, it's also this turmoil that's going on in the inside. So it's very, it's almost like an internal battle and a, it's a war going on between the person that, or the, the things that I have that have happened to me that I'm trying to break out of 
And it's almost like there's quite a visceral reaction to it internally where I really am fighting to break out of this cycle that I'm caught in, I guess is the best way to put it. So it's a fight for literally my life because the stress, the pressures, the anxiety, the panic attacks, all of those things literally make me physically sick. They say stress kills. Well, I find that to be quite true. You know, there's a breakdown of your physical body. And so there's that, but it starts mentally. You know, the chaos that goes on internally that people can't see, what they see usually is like a big old smile. You know, like this is what depression looks like. This is what PTSD looks like. But there's so much going on in the back end. So there's this battle going on about feeling this way or feeling like I'm being held back, but trying to punch through it still and trying to set myself free mentally. And then so physically I can walk out of situations like that. And I think that the music that I hear is a direct reflection of that internal battle. So it's hard hitting and it's heavy and it's punchy specifically because that's what I'm going through in the moment. And your lyrics really explore kind of the almost spellbinding way abusers can be. This line hit me hard. Your trademark covers my frame. Why can't I just walk away? Was it easy or was it difficult for you to write from your experience? Was it easy to kind of translate it or did it kind of stir up some feelings? It definitely stirred up a lot of feelings, but in the moment when I wrote this song, it was, I felt a different type of rage, <laughs> but it wasn't like a angry, I want to like tear the world to pieces type of rage. It was more like a, I need to save me kind of rage where I was able to take more, like if I were to put it into some analogy, it would be more like when it comes to my daughter, I can find my mama bear, so to speak. And it's almost like I found my mama bear for myself. And so it was this idea that it's time for me to stand up and fight for myself and to protect myself. And I have a way that I want to be able to do it. And the best possible way is to talk about this cycle, because at the time, too, people were asking me the same question. Why don't you just walk away? I mean, you know, is it really that difficult if someone is not treating you right? I'm like, actually, it really is. And so it was me trying to figure out why is it so difficult and then being able to now express that in the music. I would say that the lyrics were kind of born out of that and I wanted to be able to express that that mental struggle about being sucked back in to this process and to this cycle, you know? It's something that you're conditioned to accept as a norm. So being able to sh sh to shine a light on that is kind of where I was going with that. So yeah, I'd say it brought up a lot of feelings, but more than anything, being able to accept and acknowledge that this is what it is and this is what it looks like and being able to finally articulate that was very liberating. Sounds like it was very cathartic as well. Sounds like it Yes. It was part of the, the healing process as well. It really was. Looking back on your experience, mm -hmm. is there anything you would want to say to those currently in an abusive relationship who may feel trapped that you wish someone had said to you? Yes, actually. There's who 
if I were to choose any one of the many things, I yeah. would probably tell them, you're not crazy and you're not alone. And I think one of the most detrimental things is the judgment that people feel when it's seemingly difficult or impossible to walk away or walk out of that relationship. And I want them to feel encouraged that they're not insane for staying. There's a there's an actual reason, but I do think it's very important for them to take a look at the why they're staying. And that's a really hard question to answer. But if they can tap into that, if they can reach out to the different resources that are available to them that most of them don't even know are out there and exist, that they'll be able to pinpoint the root of why they're stuck in it. And that it's okay to not be ready, but also I do always stress an importance in not waiting to find the help that you need to break out of it, you know, for your sake, but also for the sake of the person who is the abuser. Eventually it always leads to something really awful and we'd never want it to be too late for them to do that. So there is that. Also, I do now put an emphasis on trying to help people to know where those resources are. For example, with this music video, super, so grateful to FireEye and to Sight & Sound Hawaii for really getting behind this and donating their time and, and also investing their time and equipment into you know, this music video and making it happen. They were just incredible. But we also partnered with PACT, which is Parents and Children Together. And I love that they have all these different programs, but so many people don't know about these programs and these victims don't know that these resources are there, medical, a safe place. There are shelters, you know, that are kept completely private. No one knows where they are. There's, you know, domestic abuse, hot, abuse hotlines. The DV hotline number is 808-526-2200. And this is with parents and children together. These programs are absolutely incredible. And a lot of them try to focus too on reuniting the family and trying to get every member of the family healthy so that they can come back into a healthier environment. So I think it's that. It's just knowing, trying to find the resources that they need to get the help that they want, to know that they're not crazy and they're not alone. And it can be okay. And you can get to a place of freedom and happiness, you know. So don't give up on that. It might not exactly happen the way they want. And it's definitely going to be a journey. You know, it's not an easy one when you have to face everything that has happened to you. But at, on the other end, there's going to be a side of you that you didn't even know existed if you're willing to persevere and walk it through. That was local music artist Rachel Cruz talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll post a link to her video as well as resources for domestic abuse victims on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That'll be up later today.
This is a conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence with a peek into what's called a stellar nursery, a hot spot for new stars and planets. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through. And we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn can be visible in the south and eastern skies till they set after midnight. The moon this week is waning, passing through its last quarter phase, and so skies will darken as the week goes on. And is it true you've got something about new local research into a young planet? Indeed. An international team of astronomers led by the University of Hawaii's Institute for Astronomy has accomplished the remarkable feat of directly imaging a young planet located around a star in a stellar nursery known as the Taurus Cloud. This is one of many star-forming regions in our galaxy, and imaging planets and even stars in these places can be extremely challenging because they are often shrouded in vast clouds of gas and dust. And what's the time frame on how they got it? Well, believe it or not, this planet was first imaged back in 2018 by astronomers using the Subaru telescope atop Mauna Kea. Subsequent observations were made by the large Keck telescope, also on Mauna Kea, some time afterwards. However, it's taken about three years to get to where we are today because astronomers had to make sure that what they were looking at was indeed a planet and not a background star that just happened to be in the field. That'd be like a star photobomb. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us more about what they found. Well, the planet appears to be a gas giant similar to Jupiter in our own solar system. It's located about 100 astronomical units from the host star. And to refresh your memory, an astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So this planet is basically 100 times further away from its star than the Earth is from our own Sun. And one would think this planet might even have moons if it's like Jupiter, right? Exactly. That's one of the questions that astronomers are hoping to answer in the near future. Observations with the Hubble Space Telescope and soon its successor, the James Webb Space Telescope, will allow us to determine the composition of the atmosphere of this planet and also if young moons are forming around this giant world. In many ways, it's like getting a glimpse into the past of our own solar system and seeing how planets like Jupiter and Saturn and their moons formed billions of years ago. How exciting. And you leading us through it, Christopher Phillips, another fun stargazer. Appreciate it. You're all welcome, Dave. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Waimanalo Health Center's expanded facility, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. Many of our body's complaints are due to pain coming from the muscles and joints, either being used too much or, in some cases, not enough. 
I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the healing benefits of medical massage. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Well, it went off without a hitch. We're talking about the weekend win by the University of Hawaii Rainbow Warriors football team. After much pressure on the governor to relax the COVID restrictions, about 1,000 fans, families of players were able to sit in the new stadium seats for the first time. So what's next? Well, for that, we bring in reporter Casey Harlow, who was there in Manoa on Saturday. <laughs> Good morning. Morning. Yes, it was a weekend uh, that was filled with uh, excitement, emotion, uh just a lot of different feelings flying around uh, with uh, the University of Hawaii uh, football game. Uh, I think excitement was one of the main, main things. Uh, Saturday night, obviously, they uh, the university honored uh, the legacy of Colt Brennan, uh, retired his jersey, and it was Colt Brennan night. His uh, Colt's uh, family was there, and there was a lot of uh, focus on Colt Brennan that night as well. But more importantly, fans were back in the stands, and fans were... Uh, cheering on the Rainbow Warriors to victory on yeah, Saturday night. I think a lot of people were probably jealous of you <laughs> because they probably wanted to be there. Yeah, it was a uh, it was kind of tough to get into the game, but uh, you know it's no fun when you have to work. It's not like I actually sat and watched the football game, so I couldn't tell you like how well the Rainbow Warriors played. But I did get to talk to a lot of fans prior to the game just to talk to them about how they felt about going back to the stands and you know have, being one of the last states to open up. Uh, stadium seating and events like this uh, in the country and this is what uh, some of the fans that I talked to had to say. My name is Tanner Atabersial, pretty excited. Haven't been to a game in like two years so first game back is pretty pretty exciting. I think for the guys it's like a restart button, set the tone for the rest of the season. If there's more fans coming that'd be great. Oh, I'm Brandon, I'm super excited to be back at the UH football games. Yeah. yeah. What, how has the last 18 months been? It's kind of rough. <laughs> I'm Courtney, and it's been kind of it's been kind of sad because I haven't been able to support my teams. So I'm really excited to be back here. Yeah. And I think it's like super significant that you know this this time fans are allowed back. Yeah, because Absolutely. it's at our home campus, mm -hmm. so it's definitely more exciting than usual because it's at UH and it's a different atmosphere for everyone. And uh, these fans were season ticket holders uh, prior to uh, this season, so they had experience at Aloha Stadium. And a lot of fans did say, yes, it was different, but uh, a lot of fans also are happy that it's uh, at UH Manoa rather than going out to Halava and watching the game and getting stuck in traffic and, you know, tailgating and things like that. Yeah, but brand new facility and, and, and we had a win. <laughs> I mean, yeah, all around, just awesome. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it didn't also... Um, you know, it wasn't just the fans that were excited to have uh, people back in the stands. It was also the players. The players, uh, you know, said that they were very excited. They were looking forward to this game, uh, excited to have their family in the stands. I spoke to uh, a, a lot of players, uh, parents, and they were excited too. But here's some of the things that uh, the players had to say after the game. I mean, having fans in the stands is, is amazing. You know, um, I did have some family in the stands that – that were cheering me on that I did see and take pictures with after the game. That's just something that I missed during the COVID years, just being able to see my family, uh, my mom and my sister watching me on TV, you know, just trying to make my family as, as proud as, they, as I can make them, you know. For the new players, guys like Calvin, guys like Diedrich, um, who haven't been able to experience that, you know, it's nice for them to be able just to see that and just see the, 
the energy that the fans can bring out here, you know, I love them. I love the just the atmosphere at Hawaii and just the football program and just the energy that the fans would bring. So it was definitely great. It's been a long time, like two years. So definitely looking forward to having more fans, but we're blessed to have people in the stands today and just have us, uh, they had our back today and we're just looking forward to the future. And that was uh, Diedrich Parson who ran for three touchdowns uh, on Saturday night and also a senior defensive back, Corey Bethley, uh, who had an interception, ran it back for a touchdown, a pick six. Uh, and obviously, Coach uh, Todd Graham also very excited and happy that there was fans back in the stands and looking forward to having more people uh, attend. Also spoke to David Lassner uh, during the game. He was happy that people <laughs> were uh, in the stands again. And also, uh, he said that you know he's keeping in touch with state and uh, county leaders about possibly expanding those limits uh, in yeah, the future. Yeah, because I, you know there are other sports, right? The folks want people to turn out, and and hopefully we can keep the counts down. Like you know today was less than you know 100, so that's positive, double digits. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Lassner definitely said that you know it depends. It entirely depends on how many cases there are. Uh, for, you know, new COVID cases. But uh, for the University of Hawaii, uh, yes, fans are allowed back for, say, women's soccer, which is out at the Patsy T. Mink Central Oahu Regional Park. Uh, There's not a lot of stands there, so, you know, and not a lot of people go out to those games, but they're encouraging people to go out. And obviously, there's the women's volleyball team. uh, There is going to be a max of 500 people that can attend those games. And obviously, um, maybe going forward, we'll see that loosen a bit uh, for men's basketball and other indoor sports as well. Yeah, because you want to cheer the players on no matter what sport, you know, be out there to support the team. Exactly. Once again, we're all waiting to see uh, how things kind of turn out uh, to the future. But for now, 1,000 fans allowed in uh, football games and outdoor events. Water only, no food, anything like that, and 500 for indoor sports. Right. Got to be vaccinated. Yep. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. That was HBR's Casey Harlow talking to us about the weekend game that allowed fans back into the new stadium. That is it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about something called Turbo Court. It's a pilot to improve access to the judiciary, making small claims court more user-friendly. Do you have a story idea for us? Send it via email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And did you miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? Well, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.